You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. It's a beautiful, sunny day, and for once, not too windy, my mom and I drive up onto the ridge overlooking the town of Walden. As a kid, I remember coming up here every summer for the fair and the rodeo. It's a 360-degree view up here, and today the mountains are dusted with autumn snow. We're out here for the weekly food drive. Driving in, we pass a long line of parked cars, people sitting behind the wheel. They've been parked here for over an hour. We get out and join the volunteers waiting for the truck to arrive. Right off the bat, it shows up, and the volunteers kick into high gear. Maybe you remember Tina Maddox from Episode 5. She's the gal who started a nonprofit called Restorative Resources Programming House. When it comes to helping people in this community, Tina has her finger in all the pies. Kind of literally. Because one of the biggest issues she's fighting is food insecurity. Walden has only one grocery store, one of a regional chain of small-town groceries. A few years back, the company went bankrupt, and Walden's one and only grocery store shut down. For a couple years, people had to drive an hour over a mountain pass to get their food. A new company bought the chain and reopened Walden's grocery, but it's a pretty small store. So every other Tuesday, when the food truck comes, there's a long line like the one that's out there today. Tina tells me before the pandemic, people came inside the building and assembled their own boxes of food. Not anymore. So we build the boxes. They will drive through. You see them all lined up out there. We do a drive-through model. They drive through. We load all of the things that are pre-boxed into their cars for them. And so today, we have been averaging about 150 families a month. When you do the math, okay, on this, we are feeding anywhere from three quarters to two thirds of this community every month through our feeding programs. And we are known as a food desert. We are one of the true food deserts in the entire state. Lots of places in the American West are quickly becoming food deserts. That's a place where people have a hard time getting reliable, healthy food. Sometimes it's because they can't afford that kind of food. Other times, they have to travel long distances to get that food. Sometimes, like for Walden, it's because of both. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. 
I'm Melody Edwards. Today, I'm collaborating on this episode with reporter Catherine Wheeler. So, hi, Catherine. Hello, Melody. Tell me, um, for everybody who doesn't know you yet, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am Catherine, and I report for Wyoming Public Radio in Northeast Wyoming. So I cover basically a quarter of the state. I think it's going to be really interesting to sort of compare my hometown of Walden, Colorado, to some of the the ghost towning um, communities that are you know, up in your region. And it seems like, you know, some of the farmers and the food advocates up there are doing some really innovative things. So Gillette, where a lot of this is happening, you know, people have just gotten really innovative because they've seen their community struggle and they want to come up with solutions. It's a very like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of town. I wonder if you can talk about why this is an especially critical issue, this issue of food security for some of these really small shrinking communities. So when you're dealing with smaller places that don't have that access, or it takes even longer to get to the places you do have access, food insecurity is wildly important for these people. Not all of these places have equal access or opportunity to get a regular grocery store food supply that you and I are used to. And so when you have to top off your regular weekly, bi-weekly grocery trip by driving 50 miles to the nearest grocery store, maybe to save cash, maybe to be able to shop in bulk and not have to go every week, that's critically important. But what Catherine's describing here It's not just happening to invisible people that you'll never know. I lived with the realities of a food desert for years. My parents still do. And so does Kathy Romack, a friend of mine from Walden. I remember when I first met Kathy back in the early 90s, when I was helping run my parents' hunting and fishing camp. This crazy couple wandered in the door. They looked like they'd stepped out of some bygone era. Tattered cowboy hats, his droopy mustache, a handsome couple. Kathy had beautiful red flowing hair back then. My late husband, John, wanted to put hay up with horses, and they were doing it at the Stevens Brothers Ranch in Rand. So uh, we got out of the city, weaned ourselves off of money, and came to North Park. But they also moved to North Park because John was a trapper, and Kathy made things with the furs. I used to sell moccasins and gloves and, oh, hats and, I don't know, lots of things. My neck told me I couldn't do that anymore. John grew up near Colorado Springs. Even as a kid, he loved trapping. They used to let him on the school bus with his shotgun because he'd get off and trap, uh, check his traps on his way home. And, you know, he was he was into ranching. He was more of a person that liked to be by himself. So he brought me up here because of that. And then in um, 96, Denver got to make a decision on trapping, which they weren't educated to do. And it really kind of devastated that for John. And uh, so he just took his own life that year. 
that must have been a really hard time for you. And, and, and so I wonder, you know, why you ended up staying in North Park. Oh, yeah. The, the people when he died were incredible. They uh, made me feel loved. And one of the ways that they showed her love was by feeding her. We worked closely with the DOW, the Division of Wildlife. Somebody had poached a moose, and it was in dispute for a long time. So it got uh, packaged and froze, and they backed up to my door and unloaded it. (laughs) After John died, it was like, wow, (laughs) what a blessing. Wow. And moose is good. I tell you what, I like moose. Kathy says North Parkers are proud of that kind of self-sufficiency. A couple of years ago, a bunch of antelope got hit during a a snowstorm, and a lot of people got at that meat, too. I don't think we'll starve in North Park. We got plenty of meat. We just need veggies. And when the grocery store shut down, fresh produce became even more elusive. But Kathy says, true to form, North Parkers made do. Yeah, there was a short time there that we had to do some entrepreneurial stuff. When Rosa brought her in, her she opened up and sold us some good produce. And then Nick opened up the meat shop. Some people that worked in Steamboat would bring food home for certain people. That's one of the things that is done still today. Well, is anybody going to Laramie? Is anybody going to Steamboat? Because would you get this for me? Not long after the grocery closed, a family dollar store opened on Main Street. But Kathy says they only sell processed food, no fruits or veggies. So yeah, getting fresh produce, it's the hardest thing for rural shoppers in the American West. Not that far from Walden, there's an effort to get those fruits and veggies in people's fridges, people like Kathy Romack. A group of visionary ladies up in northeastern Wyoming are trying to figure out a long-term solution to that veggie shortage. Catherine Wheeler says it's a solution that could be a useful future model for places like my hometown. In Gillette, Wyoming, Megan Taylor and Erin Galloway's office is just a cinder block room in the Boys and Girls Club. At the beginning of summer, the office was stacked full with boxes of mac and cheese, apples, and ready-to-prepare meals to hand out to kids throughout the county who need extra food over the weekend just to get by. By late August, their once pre-packaged kingdom was nearly empty. Megan and Erin are the co-founders of the Edible Prairie Project. It's a nonprofit that addresses food insecurity, but their focus isn't really on those weekend food bags or just boxes of ready-to-eat meals, which are pretty standard among anti-hunger organizations these days. They're like a cool nonprofit. They have a bigger goal. Megan says they want to create a food system that serves everyone equally. We just started to notice certain issues cropping up in our community, especially when it came to the availability and accessibility of local food. And we knew we wanted a way to work on that. And that's kind of how EPP was formed. Erin says they wanted to add to what was already there. So while there's several organizations providing local food in Campbell County, where else was there gaps and how could we help plug some holes and then also reach into more of our our low-income residents and, and provide another way for them because Across the country, farmers markets are seen as as boutique and luxury things that are not necessarily very accessible to low-income families and residents. 
Now, the Edible Prairie Project does a lot of things, and they have a lot of goals, including restructuring the entire food system and remodeling it with a local focus. But just like them, I'll start small. On this particular Monday, Megan is running around the office trying to get everything settled for their main focus. Baskets filled with veggies from local farmers and producers. She starts going through all the vegetables that the farmers have dropped off. There's the first round of tomatoes, there are a lot of peppers, and a surprise eggplant. Then we start sorting through the pickling cucumbers. She lays out their laundry baskets that they use to store each bundle ahead of pickup outside their office and carefully sets each serving of veggies in. Besides the tomatoes, folks get to choose their own. Edible Prairie Project not only makes these baskets for people who pay for the service, but they also accept SNAP or WIC benefits, meaning low-income people have access to the same baskets full of local produce anyone who pays full price is getting. And with a grant in response to the pandemic, these SNAP and WIC customers were able to get them for free. Creating access may be one of the biggest parts of Edible Prairie Project's mission, and it's with good reason. Campbell County is right in the middle of northeast Wyoming. Its border runs all the way to Montana. Gillette is its biggest city, with about 32,000 people. But the county is also full of smaller communities, like Rosette and Recluse, that don't have grocery stores. And many rural people rely on coming into Gillette, especially to stock up or save money. In Gillette, there are grocery stores and services to make sure people get food like the Council of Community Services. Its food pantry serves nearly 2,000 families. Even though Gillette itself isn't exactly a food desert, it doesn't have public transportation, and it's not a walkable city at all. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck and it's between your monthly car and rent payments or grocery money, it's not going to groceries. And then add on all the issues that could cause if you live 50 miles from town. Campbell County is quite well known for being a rich county government in Wyoming, with the ability to provide a lot of services. It's the center of Wyoming's coal industry, which has plenty of good-paying jobs with not a lot of formal education required. But that's changing as the community feels the impacts of mine closures, bankrupt companies, more shutdowns, and downturns. Gillette's at risk of losing everything that built it. And the reverberations are felt by smaller communities, too. Take Moorcroft, for example. It has just over a thousand people, and it's 30 minutes east of Gillette in a neighboring county. It's the place you drive through on your way to visit another. You make a couple of left turns in town as you go to visit Devil's Tower if you're coming from the east like I am. But there's not much to look at or going on. It's right on the banks of the Belfouche River, and it used to be a ranching community. But lots of people now in Moorcroft work in the coal and oil industry and commute back and forth, so it's a ghost towning too. It has one grocery store and a new dollar store. People will sometimes head to surrounding areas like Gillette, Casper, or even Rapid City, South Dakota if they think they can save money. Monty Reichenberg is the pastor at First Presbyterian Church and works with the town's interfaith community food pantry. I see him posting at least a couple of times a month in the town's Facebook group about times and locations for food pantries. 
last couple of years in different areas. We've had some very devastating hailstorms that destroyed the gardens that uh, a lot of people depend on to eat off of through the fall and the winter. It's just seems like this year and then with the interruption in the transportation and the shortages and uh, food supplies and the stores and things, it's just kind of kept compounding. He says they are seeing more and more families use the local and mobile food pantries that visit small towns. Now, um, because it's continued, uh, the extra unemployment things that the government was doing are falling away and the people have gone through their savings. So we have families come every month that are, you know, saying we tried, but uh, we're running out of money. So we're starting to look for help. Access or a lack thereof is a huge factor of food insecurity for people in places like this. But so is quality. Christine Porter is an associate professor of community and public health at the University of Wyoming. She studies the food system for a living, and she knows all about how hunger works in small towns around the American West. It's not just a shortage of food. In the United States, people don't generally starve um, for lack of food, but they will be malnutritioned or undernutritioned and live under great chronic stress of being unsure if they'll have enough or enough of the right kinds of food, right? They might have ramen, but they don't have salad or apples. According to Feeding America, people in rural areas frequently face the problem of food insecurity at a higher rate compared to their urban counterparts. 63% of all counties in America are rural, but they make up nearly 90% of counties with the highest rates of food insecurity. So being food insecure is devastating. Even the uncertainty, even if you end up having enough and no one's actually hungry, uh, it is truly devastating and much more so for children. And then also the knock-on effects for a parent who feels like they can't provide for their child. We rediscover this problem, you know, every 10 years about how severe and deep and wide our poverty and food insecurity is in the United States because we treat it as if People should be ashamed of it, and there's a huge stigma attached to it. So they hide it, and that makes it even harder to solve. Like my friend, Kathy Romack, back in Walden. She's noticed that shame. Do you feel like there's a bit of a stigma showing up there? I think so. But then there's some people that really don't need it. You know, they have plenty of money. Um, But a lot of people in in Walden uh, don't have very good incomes. Um, Most of them, I think, are probably on a fixed income. I am. I I do have... uh, one side job, but, <laughs> you know, and then, I don't know, uh, not enough to go buy all my groceries, I guess. But Kathy is a musician and once organized a local cowboy poetry gathering. That's where I first hung out with her. So she's not shy. So when the food truck started to come to town, she went and checked it out. I jumped in there after I saw what they were getting. They were getting some good stuff, you know, like turkeys in uh, this last batch we got. We got real butter and eggs and cheese and yogurt and lots of grapefruit. Apples, I've been making, they, they have, they've been giving us those green apples and boy, do they make good apple pie. Kathy, well, I think she's kind of an old school foodie. Actually, I think a lot of rural Western folks are. She likes making things out of nothing like she did with her husband's furs. So when she gets those free food boxes, she makes them stretch. 
She's been juicing the ruby-red grapefruits and making her own bone broth out of the turkey bones. But if Kathy lived in Gillette, she might not have to feel the stigma because of something like Edible Prairie Project. That's because they're committed to making sure that people who are low income get the exact same customer service, produce, and opportunities as anyone who can easily afford it. Most of the food we see at the typical grocery store chain is shipped in. In the rural West, that can mean much longer distances. And if you're in a smaller town or a hard-to-reach area, trucking your food in is the only option, but can also get harder and harder to sustain, especially for a chain serving a small population. And that's what it's like living in Northeast Wyoming. There isn't close to enough local food to supply everyone, especially at a price everyone can afford. But relying on food to be trucked in isn't working anywhere, let alone rural places. I mean, just think back to March, maybe April, maybe February, who knows anymore. And if the pandemic is teaching us anything, it's that everything we might think is fine is 100% not fine. Across the country, a familiar sight, empty shelves as people storm grocery stores preparing to self-isolate. Grocery stores are scrambling to keep up with demand as panic buying empties many shelves across the country. It might have just seemed like our entire food system had just started falling apart. But in truth, it didn't just start to fall apart. It's been a black hole of doom for a long, long time. Dallas today, people waiting for food. They were waiting and waiting and waiting. So many thousands and thousands. Look at all those cars just waiting to get some free food uh, because they're struggling. You know, last week we saw these lines stretch for miles. There were so many people. Uh, this is the same exact situation. The pandemic has emphasized the issue of food insecurity and racial disparity in the U.S. Now the United Nations is warning the coronavirus crisis has put the world on the brink of a pandemic. 265 million people could face acute food shortages by the end of the year. That is double last year's projections. Christine Porter, the professor, she says our current food system is so large and so dependent on major companies, it's harder and harder for it to be agile. Which means if something unexpected happens, like a pandemic, the whole thing goes crashing down. But having more, smaller local food systems can make us more adaptable in crises. While Aaron and Megan of Edible Prairie Project could talk for hours about their dreams of solving these problems, they know they are in step negative five of one million. Multiple times throughout our conversations, they admit they haven't figured everything out or close to everything. We have to feed kids that are hungry, and, and there's there's no questions about that. Like, kids need to have food, and so we work within the system that we have access to, and that is largely processed, prepackaged food, and we'll work on growing our local food base so that we can put local food items into those bags. Well, that will take years. We don't want to sit and wait and say, well, we can't do it perfectly. We say we want to put a Band-Aid on the situation. Let's do the best that we can right now and and work towards the end goal. So they ask their customers questions. They want to know if having access to these food items changes people's fruit and vegetable consumption. 
They're studying it. And just guess who they're working on it with? Christine Porter. Christine says she did a version of this research project with another group in Wyoming, though it was smaller and structured a little differently. But it showed some promising results. That showed dramatic improvements in both fruit and vegetable consumption and in food security, both for the people who only got fruit and vegetable coupons and for the people who got grocery coupons. The final analysis won't be ready for a while. But in the meantime, Edible Prairie Project is just working on more of the baby steps of tackling the real issue. There's more when we return. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. This season of The Modern West is sponsored by the Argosy Foundation, committed to supporting diverse people and programs that make society a better place to live. More information is available at argosyfnd.org. The Argosy Foundation is a philanthropic organization focused on leveraging the impact of people and organizations working to make the world a better place, employing creative and entrepreneurial approaches that help people to help themselves. Argosy works to ensure that their partners become successfully self-sustaining. The intention of this work is to solve systemic problems, build teams and communities, create replicable solutions and inspire others to contribute in their own ways. To learn more about this mission and the Argosy's work, visit argosyfnd.org. <laughs> That's good. All right. Don't touch the red and white wire because it is an electric Trying to get the deer out. Although we're not being entirely successful. In it's cold and overcast in August. So I'm wearing a flannel shirt that hasn't seen the light of day since May. And I'm walking around with the farmer and co-founder of Edible Prairie Project, Erin Galloway. Erin and her husband, Mike, own this farm and ranch just south of Gillette, Wyoming. This is where we grow uh, the bulk of our summer crops. You can see the grasshopper damage like on the turnips. And that's also the flea beetle damage that we talked about. Like They're just a tiny, tiny black beetle. Um, and so that's how you can tell Like we use minimal pesticides <laughs> because there's still damage. <laughs> Like the grass and the beet greens, like you know, you can see the grasshoppers just you can tell what they like to snack on. Oh, yeah, it's a constant struggle. This year's been tough with bugs, so just the act of growing food in northeast Wyoming can be difficult. Erin would know she has two high tunnels, which are kind of like greenhouses for growing all sorts of seasonal crops, plus an uncovered garden. So I personally have been market farming for about 10 years now, and I wouldn't say I've seen it all because, like, every year presents new challenges. There's the early spring heat that can ruin a lettuce crop, the late frost, and then the wind. Wyoming is famous for it. The nonstop 40-mile-an-hour winds, like, you would never think that wind would be such an issue in farming, but you can't put a tender broccoli transplant outside when the wind's going to blow 40 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden we had days where it was 90 degrees or 80 degrees and, and record high temperatures are happening. And again, the wind is blowing. <laughs> and, and, then, and then the rain quits. And so now we have drought. 
Throw in some massive hailstorms and you've got Northeast Wyoming in a nutshell. But Aaron can't grow enough crops to supply Edible Prairie Project's needs. It's unsustainable. So they are also building an army of local producers and farmers. They purchase from farmers who are beginners, women, people of color, veterans, basically what the USDA identifies as historically disadvantaged farmers. And that's who they're focusing on. Because the barrier of entry is so tough, they're doing what they can to help out. This winter, especially, we're going to spend time like, how big is your plot size? Which way is it oriented? How can we maximize productivity? How long can your rows be? Let's map out your beds. This crop goes well with this crop. And, and just work with them um, to what is their, what's their comfort level and where are they struggling and how can, we, how can we help that? And by sharing her knowledge and working with these new farmers, Erin is able to build a community that will support itself and slowly create a bigger and bigger lake that they can fish out of. It's a tiny snowball. But it's, when I started in local food 10 years ago, selling at a farmer's market to where we are now, we've gained so much momentum. And it's, it's nowhere near where we need to be, but like it is, we're very much on our way to a, a better food system. As Christine will tell you, and Megan and Erin know well enough, Food insecurity is a problem, but it's not actually the problem. It's a symptom of much larger issues, and solving it will take some massive changes. And no one person, nonprofit, government agency, well meaning school lunch program can solve it. Farmers markets and producing and selling local food do help, they stimulate the economy. But to get to fixing our food system, we have to acknowledge what the real problem behind food insecurity is. I would say food insecurity in the United States uh, it has two main causes. Uh, one is poverty and our willingness to accept poverty. And two is our uh, lack of interest in redistributing the food and resources we have to make up for that gap. Christine says so far, she thinks not-for-profit groups like Edible Prairie Project are making the most strides in addressing poverty and food insecurity together. And local organizations most often know the best ways to address these issues in communities. Yeah, and local people are the ones who know best. Kathy's intuition tells her that Walden's solutions are right before their eyes. If North Park could start providing its own produce, like through greenhouses, that, that would be wonderful. I wish the school, which has a greenhouse and which teaches kids uh, to grow bedding plants for the spring, would get into more depth to teaching them how to, um, well, just how about let's make some money growing produce. Teach them how to make money growing produce. What's that? that sounds like a good plan, don't you think? It might sound like a pipe dream, trying to feed people with food grown in a valley that's 8,000 feet in elevation. But Kathy and my family, we've all done it. My dad has an amazing garden. Yeah, you can, the root vegetables grow great, you know, and peas will do well. Anything that's cold climate, lettuce, lettuce really does good. Oh, and raspberries, mmm. Yes, I remember your dad tried to dig up some of my raspberries and they were so hard he couldn't get them out of the ground. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, I mean, I cannot believe how many carrots he got this year. Like, he's, he's going to be eating carrots for sure well into January, if not February. 
Uh, that's the best place I've ever grown carrots is in North Park, and they, they're so easy, really, as long as you can keep your cat out of them. And Kathy likes the idea of getting veggies in her weekly food box grown from nearby places like Middle Park, where there's several local farms. She says local ranchers already put meat in there, like ham and beef. It builds jobs and it builds community resilience. It builds resilience of our food systems while you know, making it easier to feed everybody. You know, a community can do a lot by themselves, including a lot of exciting, innovative grocery store models where a community-run grocery store that works without even staffing, right, but that provides access to that community. Um, there are solutions communities can come up with, but it would help a lot if the state was behind it and provided models and policy supports and sometimes financial support just to get something started. It's one of the most promising areas in which we could invest ways to diversify our economy. Edible Prairie Project is also trying to close other gaps through the baskets. They include a newsletter that highlights the farmers who produce these items to build a stronger farm, food, and consumer relationship. They also offer garden baskets so folks can plant their own harvest. We've also provided um, some basic kitchen essentials to our, our Snap and Wick participants. So this spring they got a salad spinner because we do a lot of greens in the spring. And then this summer they received a cutting board and a knife set. So those basic utensils can also somewhat be a barrier to preparing fresh food. Using, you know, a box processed meal in your home is a lot different than, than working with a fresh vegetable. And Christine says providing those items is one of the most important things Edible Prairie Project could be doing. It's like the metaphor of you teach a man to fish. You give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. You teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. And that is not true because the knowledge of how to fish is not enough. You need a boat. You need clean water. You have to fish in the, in the sea. The education is not enough. You literally have to have the tools and the environment and the access in order to eat for a lifetime. the solving. It's the not managing poverty, but ending it. Not managing hunger, but ending it. So I asked Christine, what would she do? How would she change this whole thing? I would like to reimagine a food system where every job pays a living wage, including growing food and harvesting food and selling food and processing food and serving food should all earn a living wage, that they don't need subsidies from the federal government to have a roof over their head and health care and to be able to afford the real price of good food. Yeah, the dreams are big, but that's not the starting point. That's step one million. It isn't just on farmers, nonprofits, government agencies to fix this. It will take a collective shift of everyone, like you and me. So they're all the same this week, so you can just take whatever basket looks most appealing to you. And then you come over here and pick your tomatoes too, if you want. And these are the first ones, you should get tomatoes again in the, the coming weeks too. But these okay. are our first, first little batch here. Okay. And they are pretty ripe. You're not a passive actor. Um, you've got you've got purchasing power. You've got the ability to change the food system and build the food system that you want. And so just take an active role. And if everybody would even, like, just wants, like, grow a vegetable, even if it's a failure, just try it. Save a seed from a tomato. 
um, compost. You know, just make, you know, try to think about the decisions you make when you go to the grocery store. Maybe shop at your local farmer's market like once a month. Um, you, you, like you, everybody can take ownership of their role in the food system because we're all a part of it. And I think just realizing that it's not just the farmers, it's all of us. The local food movement in Gillette, Wyoming, has a vision for how to solve the problem of food insecurity for small towns across the West. The dream is to create hubs where locally grown foods can be collected and then distributed to all the nooks and crannies where ghost towning is making food hard to come by. So when I talk to Tina Maddox, the, um, the advocate in my hometown of Walden, um, you know, she expressed a problem in our town where the local leaders of, of our community are resistant to making changes like this, um, collaborating with bigger communities. Any advice for these kind of small towns that maybe they, they are feeling like, I don't know, should we really be collaborating with bigger communities? I think that's really hard for a lot of these communities. They're so used to being independent. Um, Gillette is a super proud community, but I don't think that any of us can do it alone. No one community is going to be able to solve this by itself because resources, like even just the food pantries I've seen, for instance, in Warcroft, like they invite people from two other counties because it's just what it is. And we got to help the people that need it. And it shouldn't matter where they're from or what town or county limit they live in. It's just the resources are limited. And so applying that as equitably as possible is probably the best way to go about it. Banding together to help a town survive? It's a lesson that history taught us well. Next time on The Modern West, we're going back in time to hear about the struggles and resilience of early 20th century Black communities built by the descendants of enslaved Africans. And it's spelled D-E-A-R, not D-E-E-R. He said, because this land will be dear to us. Over the next few episodes, we're going to explore immigration in the American West, how we all got here, why some towns were wiped out, and how the influx of immigrants of all sorts could help small towns revive today. Do you have a success story of growing food in high, arid places around the West? Let us know on social media at Modern West Pod. You can see photos of the Edible Prairie Project at our website, themodernwest.org. I'm Melody Edwards. Aaron Jones is our story editor. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Micah Schweitzer is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.